Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. We'll now have the preaching of God's word by Pastor Mark. Good evening. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark, and I'm an intern here at Good News Church. And I just want to say again, uh, thank you to the church, to the elders, to all of you for bearing with me uh, as a lowly intern, a seminary student, and giving me the opportunity to preach God's word to you. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, Pastor Sam has been preaching through uh, what are probably the most important events in not only the life of Christ, but in all of history. We've been looking at the mockery that Jesus endured. We looked at the crucifixion of Christ. And last week on Easter, we looked at the resurrection of Christ. And Pastor Sam, as I mentioned, he said last week that the resurrection, it's probably the single most important event in all of history. Um, If you remember from last week or just from your own knowledge of uh, the events of the resurrection, Christ rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death. He appeared to his disciples and his disciples were overjoyed. They were rejoicing. They were worshiping Christ. But then what happens afterwards? Because the story doesn't end there. Jesus appears to his disciples. He proves all of his enemies wrong. He rises from the dead. And then when the disciples, at the moment when the disciples are at the height of their joy, he leaves. Jesus leaves them. Why? Why, when Jesus has finally proved all of his enemies wrong, why, when he has conquered sin and death, does he leave? You know, I been trying to think about what would be a fitting analogy to this. And it might be like if you've met a long-lost father who you haven't known your entire life, and you finally meet him, and he fulfills all your expectations, and you spend 40 days with him, and then at the end of those 40 days, he says, I'm going to be with you forever. And then the next day, you realize he's gone. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will be with you always. So why does he leave? 
in the church, we don't really think too much about the ascension of Christ. We talk a lot about the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but not so much about the ascension. Sometimes I think if we focus, sometimes when we focus on the crucifixion and resurrection, what can happen is that the crucifixion and resurrection we can turn them into these abstract historical events that happened in the past but have no relevance for my life today. And I think the ascension helps us. The ascension shows us how the death and resurrection of Christ very much relates to your life here and now. So today in this sermon, I want to show you not only why Jesus ascended into heaven, but also why he absolutely had to, why it was necessary that Jesus had to ascend. So I want to look with you um, at why Jesus had to ascend into heaven, and I want to look at just four reasons, at least four reasons why he had to ascend. Jesus ascended into heaven first so that you might enjoy his fellowship. He ascended into heaven that you might have power to be his witness that you might approach the presence of God with boldness, and finally, that you might have hope in the face of your enemies. So before we uh, look at the ascension today, would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you hear our prayers, you hear our songs, and you delight in our prayers and our singing. Uh, I thank you for the ascension. Lord, and I ask that you would give us eyes to see you today and ears to hear you. Give me the words to speak that would encourage your people, Lord God, and that would show us more of Christ. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did Jesus ascend into heaven? The first reason I want to look at is Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might enjoy his fellowship. Now, that might sound a little strange. Why would Jesus leave his disciples if he wanted them to enjoy his presence and his fellowship? Maybe there have been times in your own life, I know I can speak from my own experience, but maybe you felt this too, that maybe there have been times when you've doubted God, or you've doubted his word, or you've doubted your own salvation, and you've thought, If only God were here, if only Jesus were here, then I could prove everybody wrong. If only Jesus were here, then I could be encouraged. If only Jesus were here, then I could know and experience his fellowship. So why did Jesus have to leave? He left so that we could know and experience a fellowship like none other. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 describes this fellowship, and it says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, You were called by God into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called by God into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul is saying here is that this is our calling. The ultimate goal of all that Pastor Sam has been preaching about as he's talked about the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of those things pointed towards the intimate fellowship that we were called to experience with Christ. The height of your Christian experience, the reason why you were created, 
is so that you could enjoy intimate fellowship with God. In the crucifixion and resurrection, we experience forgiveness of sins. We we experience the removal of our guilt and condemnation, the removal of our shame. But all of these things are not ends in themselves. The reason why we experience and can benefit from those things is because God has a greater goal in mind. And his goal is that he would be able to have an intimate experience of fellowship with you. And I think all of us here, um, even if you're not a believer, we all crave this intimacy with God um, because we were created to know him and to be known by him. We were created to have this intimacy, but sometimes uh, we don't experience that. That's not the reality of our lives. And I think part of that is because while we were created by God to enjoy this fellowship with him, a lot of times we seek to satisfy this desire that we have in other things. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a Christian author, uh, he has this to say about this. He offers his own diagnosis, and he says this. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What C.S. Lewis is saying there is that God, in the gospel, he invites us to a banquet. He invites us to a banquet with him. And yet, so often, I think, we're fooled by the crumbs that fall to the bottom of the table. We're fooled by the joys of this life, of this world, and we seek to satisfy this desire that we have for God in created things. Jesus himself has this to say. Uh, He's praying in John chapter 17 for his disciples, and he says this. Jesus says, And this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see what Jesus says there? He's saying that eternal life is not forgiveness of, of your sins. Eternal life is knowing God through Christ. Eternal life, the goal of your existence, is to know God and to be known by God. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for this fellowship that we were created to enjoy. Paul, in Ephesians 5, uh, he uses the metaphor of marriage. And he says that the intimacy that a husband and a wife enjoy in marriage, that's meant to be a mystery that points as a small little picture, a small little window, it's, it's meant to point to the intimacy that we enjoy with Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus describes this intimacy that we are to have with him using this metaphor of a vine and branches. Jesus is the vine, and we are called to be his branches that are organically connected to him. We get our life from him. We are sustained by him, and we bear fruit through his life. But the question then is, how do we enjoy this fellowship with Jesus? How can we have this intimate fellowship with him even though he's ascended to the Father? Jesus says this 
in John chapter 16, verse 7, he says this. He's speaking to his disciples, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying here that the way we enjoy this fellowship with him is through the Holy Spirit. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we're able to enjoy communion and fellowship with Jesus. The Spirit that we receive, the Spirit that fills us, is the Spirit that connects us to the person of Christ. And it's interesting here, uh, Jesus says in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying that it's better for you that I leave you. It's better that I leave. Why? Because if I don't go away, Jesus is saying, if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go away, I will send him to you. In our passage today from Luke chapter 24, Jesus says something similar. Right before Jesus is carried up to heaven in verse 49, Jesus says this, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is telling his disciples, wait for the power that will clothe you from on high. And we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, that this promise uh, that Jesus says he will send is the Holy Spirit. Because you see, before Jesus' ascension, before Jesus ascended to the Father, the disciples enjoyed fellowship with him but it was limited physically to one place. Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God, and he even now is still fully man and fully God. But now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, now that he has sent his spirit to us, we're able to enjoy his presence and his communion and fellowship with him wherever we are and whenever we uh, cry out to him. And this is an amazing mystery. Uh, I think theologians have tried to parse out how is that possible? How is it that by the Holy Spirit I am able to commune with Jesus? How is it that I can wake up in the morning and pray and talk to Jesus through the Spirit? I think we can only go so far in uncovering the depths of this mystery. It's a mystery. It's an amazing mystery. So when Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, I will be with you always to the end of the age, he wasn't using hyperbole. He meant that he would be with them, and he has kept his word, and he has remained with them, and he has remained with us through his Spirit. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we don't need to travel on a pilgrimage to a faraway city or to go to a temple to experience the presence of God. Because all of us here, if we are united to Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in us, and through him we can experience fellowship with God. uh, The past few weeks we've looked at the crucifixion and the resurrection, and The benefits that we receive through the crucifixion and the resurrection, the salvation that we have through those events, um, those things become a living reality for you through the Spirit when you have fellowship with Jesus. When you have fellowship with him, those things are no longer just historical events, 
but they are living realities that are with you every day. When you're at work and you're struggling to have peace and joy, you can pray to God where you are and you can commune with Jesus and you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding through Christ. You can wake up every morning and pray to God and fellowship with him and he will be there. And the reason why he will be there is because Jesus has ascended to the Father and he has sent the Holy Spirit. The second reason, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might have power to be his witness. Uh, And this is related to the first reason. Uh, In our passage, if you look with me at Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says this. Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, When Jesus says there, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the entire, all of the scriptures that they had at that time. Jesus is saying that the entire Bible points to him, that the entire Bible speaks about him. And here we see that Jesus, in verse 45, it says that he he opened their minds to understand these scriptures. And this was the basic message that they were to carry to the ends of the earth in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's the gospel. That's the message of the entire Bible. And this is the message that the disciples were called to carry to the ends of the earth. But the question is, how would the disciples do that? We were just talking in small group on Friday. We were looking at the account of the resurrection in Mark. And one of the amazing things about Mark's account of the resurrection is that the people who were there, who went to the tomb, were not the disciples, but it was Mary, it was Mary and Salome, and they were afraid. If you read the Gospels and you look at how the apostles, how the disciples are presented in the Gospel, they're not presented in a very flattering light. Right before this, in the same chapter, in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, the women who went to the tomb and saw the empty tomb of Jesus go to the disciples, but it says that the disciples didn't believe them. So how... Are these disciples led by Peter, the same Peter who denied Jesus three times? How would they take this message to the ends of the earth? John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is before Jesus leaves. He says this to them. Before his disciples deny him, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. This is an amazing statement that Jesus is making. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that his disciples will do greater works than he will do. What are the works that Jesus did? You read the Gospels. Jesus healed the sick. 
He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He calmed storms by the power of his word alone. And yet Jesus says here in John chapter 14 that his disciples will do greater works than these. On the other hand, he also says that his disciples will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. So he connects the work that the disciples are going to do with his going to the Father. And so what is that connection? How is it that the disciples can do uh, this greater work? I, I think Jesus helps clarify this for us uh, later on in the same chapter when he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus is saying here that his disciples will do greater works than even he did during his ministry on earth because when he ascends to the Father, he will send them the power of the Holy Spirit. You can read the book of Acts and you can see that Peter, the same Peter, like I said, who denied Jesus three times in Acts chapter 2, he stands up in the crowd And he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. And we read that 3,000 souls were added that that day. What changed? The circumstances didn't change. The threat of persecution, the threat of imprisonment, the threat of death was still there for Peter and the rest of the apostles. So what changes in the book of Acts? What changes is that Jesus, after he ascends to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit He sends the Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to be his witnesses. And you read the rest of the book of Acts, and it's really interesting because you see that the works that Peter and Paul do and the rest of the apostles do, they actually look a lot like the things that Jesus did. Peter, in the beginning of Acts, he heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. People touch his robe and they are healed. And the same goes for Paul. How are they able to do this? The reason why they're able to do this is because when Jesus sends them his spirit, it's not just this spiritual power, this spiritual energy that he's giving to them, but actually Jesus is continuing his work through his apostles. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but we could actually say, we could actually call it the Acts of the Ascended Lord, the Acts of the Ascended Jesus, because in the book of Acts, Jesus is continuing to work through the apostles. So Jesus ascended to the Father not only to send his Holy Spirit so that we could have fellowship with him, but also to send his Spirit so that we might have power to be his witnesses. Thirdly, Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might approach the presence of God with boldness. Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might approach the presence of God with boldness. You know, we talked about how uh, Jesus had to ascend so that he could send his spirit. But the question is, what is Jesus doing right now? Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, what is he doing? One of the last things Jesus does before his ascension in our passage Uh, In Luke chapter 24, verse 50, it says that Jesus blesses his disciples. Um, I'll read uh, for you from verse 50 of our passage. It says this, Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, 
he blessed them. Jesus looked at his disciples before he departed. He lifted up his hands and he said a blessing over them. This blessing that Jesus gave, it's a priestly work. It's the work of a priest. It's in some ways similar to what Pastor Sam does when he gives the benediction. It's similar to what the Old Testament priests did, the Old Testament priests like Aaron, when they gave the, the, priestly, uh, the priestly blessing. So right before Jesus ascended here, Jesus was acting as a priest. And this is actually a role that Jesus continues now that he's in the presence of God. Now that Jesus has ascended, he continues to be our high priest. You know, I think most people today, when they think of the word priest, um, they have a certain image that comes to mind. Uh, They might think of Catholic priests or priests that they see on TV. According to the Bible, a priest was someone who mediated the presence of God to the people of Israel. A priest was someone who also knew the religious law of Israel and was able to determine whether something was clean or unclean. The reason why the people needed priests is because God is a holy God. What it means to say that God is holy is that he is completely set apart from his creation. There is an infinite contrast between God's perfection between God's perfect character and the fallenness and sinfulness of mankind in this world. Nothing tainted with sin can stand in God's presence. That's why in the Old Testament, uh, the people trembled in fear. They trembled in fear whenever they thought that they might have seen the face of God. We all know Uh, that because of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross, that that dividing wall between God and man was torn in two. Matthew chapter 27 describes how the curtain in the temple that separated the holiest place from the people, that that curtain was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. So if that division, if that separation between God and man was removed by Christ on the cross, Why is Jesus still serving as our high priest in God's presence? Why do we still need Jesus to be our priest? The reason why we need Jesus to continue to be our high priest is that all of us here, we all continue to sin. Though Jesus offered up a final perfect sacrifice that cleanses us from sin and removes our guilt in this life, we all continue to sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all know that everyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus had to ascend to the right hand of the Father so that he could serve as our advocate. When the crushing weight of sin bears down upon you, when the guilt of sin seeks to destroy you, when Satan, even now, holds up 
against you in the presence of God a list of your failures, a list of your sins, and when Satan seeks to condemn you, Jesus stands there as our high priest. He stands there as your advocate, pleading your case before God. One of my most favorite hymns is um, the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. I think we've sung it here a few times, and I think this hymn captures perfectly the reality of what Jesus is doing now that he's ascended. I'll read you some of the lyrics. It goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. One of the things that I just love about this song is that this song, it just tells it like it is. The writer of this hymn, he doesn't say, if Satan tempts me to despair. He says, when Satan tempts me to despair. Not if, because, brothers and sisters, Satan will tempt you to despair. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion who prowls around seeking to devour you. And the main way that Satan seeks to tempt you to despair is by accusing you in your conscience or by laying a charge against you. Satan whispers in your ear and he he tempts you to despair by accusing you of your sin. How could you fall into that sin again? Shouldn't you be more mature than this? Look at all the other people in your church. They're so much better than you. They have their life together. They must be obeying God, unlike you. When Satan whispers in your ear and holds up your sin as an accusation against you, brothers and sisters, know that Jesus stands as our high priest, as our advocate. Know that he stands at the right hand of God, pleading to God on your behalf. When Satan accuses you, when Satan wants the pronouncement over your life to be guilty, condemned, Jesus stands there and says, no condemnation. When Satan accuses you to God and says, look, look at her sin, look at her continuing in her sin, Jesus pleads for you and says to God, look at my wounds, look at the work that I have completed on his behalf. Maybe some of you are here today and or maybe some of you are discouraged by the burdens of your own sin and failure, by the weight of your sin. Maybe you came here today with a heavy heart and maybe you feel unworthy to stand before God because of your sin, because of the guilt, because of the shame. Friends, if that's you, hear this word from God from Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus right now is interceding for you. He is praying for you. He is pleading on your behalf as your high priest, as your advocate to God. And because of that, because he ascended to the Father so that he can plead your case before God, now you can go to God with boldness. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Let us go to the throne of God confidently with boldness. Finally, Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might have hope in the face of your enemies. Jesus ascended into heaven so that you might have hope in the face of your enemies. Our passage in verse 51 describes Jesus' departure in this way. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 uh, recounts the ascension as well, and it also says, And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. If Jesus simply wanted to return to the Father, he could have just vanished. And actually, in Luke chapter 24, earlier, uh, Jesus appears to uh, some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he talks with them. And after he talks with them, Jesus vanishes. If Jesus could vanish and go to God, why all the theatrics? Why this ascension into the sky and a cloud coming to take Jesus away from them? What's the significance of the fact that Jesus actually ascended into the sky before he went to God? There's a lot of symbolism here, but the basic point here is this, that when Jesus was carried up above the disciples and into heaven, he was being enthroned as the king over the universe. The ascension into heaven was Jesus' public enthronement ceremony. It was Jesus' way of publicly declaring to not only his disciples, but the entire world that Jesus lives and that he reigns and that he is king over all. He was announcing that his throne, though he is a king, though he is the true king, his throne isn't here on earth. His throne is in heaven at God's right hand. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 20, that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Friends, Jesus reigns now as our king. And he is king not only over us, but over all of creation. And this should comfort you. This should comfort you because all of us need, we all need a conquering king. Maybe some of you here feel that 
you don't really feel that you need a conquering king. Why do we need a king who conquers? But one thing that you need to realize is that the way that the Bible describes our Christian lives is that we are in a spiritual battle. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil. The spiritual forces of evil wage war against us by causing us to seek our own glory and not the glory of God, by leading us into sin, by causing us to doubt God and his word, by turning us away from the gospel. But Jesus overcame the temptations of the devil. Jesus is enthroned now, and he has secured on the cross the final victory over Satan. How have you fought the fight of faith this week? If you're like me, maybe most of the time it feels like you're losing. Maybe you're here and when you think back to this week and you think back to all of the struggles that you've had against sin and against temptation and doubt and you realize you feel like you've lost. You've lost the battle. Maybe you were tempted again at work to uh, be bitter or angry or jealous of someone. Maybe you were tempted to lust. And instead of looking to Christ as your satisfaction and joy, you gave in to your desires. Maybe there were opportunities that God gave you to share the gospel with your neighbors. But yet again, the enemy was able to sow seeds of fear in your heart and turn you away from doing that. Friends, if that describes any of you here, take heart in knowing that Christ is your king. Take heart knowing that he is enthroned at the right hand of God. And you're going to lose many battles in this life. But you can have hope knowing that Christ has delivered the decisive, fatal blow to Satan on the cross. In Jesus' ascension, he declared that all things were put in subjection under him. And even though in this life we will continue to struggle and fight, we can know that victory is guaranteed. One of the ways that I've heard uh, this explained is compared to the D-Day invasion in World War II. If you're familiar with that, uh, you know that the Allies in World War II, when they landed at Normandy on D-Day, victory was pretty much guaranteed by that point. But the war hadn't yet ended. Even though the Allies had delivered the decisive blow, there were still battles to be fought. And that's similar to how we can think of Christ's enthronement in heaven. Christ has declared, I am king over all of the universe. I am king. I rule even over the spiritual forces of evil. So you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be discouraged when you lose a battle because I've already won the war. And I think this is true not only for those of us who struggle with sin here in a place that's relatively safe, but for Christians all across the world. You know, as some of you know, uh, you've probably heard the news last uh, Easter Sunday, 
across the world in Pakistan, there was a suicide bomber who killed over 70 people, mostly women and children, who gathered together to celebrate the resurrection. Um, they all died in an instant. What is the hope that we can offer them? And that's not an isolated incident. All across the world, Christians are imprisoned for their faith. Christians are persecuted and killed for their faith. What is the hope that they have? The hope that they have is that though their enemies can destroy their body, only God has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. And we know that Christ has declared victory even over them. The ascension tells us that Christ is king. We can weep with our brothers and sisters across the world, but we don't weep as those who have no hope. We weep as those who know that Christ reigns even now. We weep with them as those who know that Christ has been exalted above every name that is named. And we know that one day, every knee in heaven and on earth, will bow, whether willingly or unwillingly, to Jesus when he returns. I think it can be easy during this season, during this time of the year, when we think about the crucifixion and the resurrection, to treat them like events in history and nothing more. What relevance do these things have for everyday life? The ascension of Jesus is what connects the reality and the benefits of the crucifixion and resurrection to your everyday life. Because in the ascension, Jesus sends you his spirit so that you can enjoy fellowship with him, so that his promise that I will be with you until the end of the age is true, so that you can have power to be his witness, to proclaim the truth of the crucifixion and resurrection to the end of the earth And so that you can have hope even when you are burdened by your sin, knowing that Jesus stands as your high priest and that he is enthroned as your king. So let's go to him now in prayer. Let's ask him uh, for this hope of the ascension. Let's ask him to remind us again that he stands before God, in the presence of God, on our behalf, pleading our case to him. Let's pray together.